agnostics, long-haired weirdos, short-haired weirdos, vandals, hooligans. The government has the government love. The government has the government love. The government Welcome to the Politics Guys, a place for bipartisan, rational, and civil debate on American politics and policy. I'm Michael Baranowski, a professor of political science at Northern Kentucky University. I am joined today by my conservative counterpart, well, counterparts, Cleveland area attorney and defender of freedom, Jay Carson, and... Good morning, good yep, morning Mike. And as well, a special uh, late-breaking guest, Oklahoma Christian University political scientist, Trey Orndorff. Thank you. Yeah, it's it's always nice when we can do a three person show every once in a while to bring in some other perspectives there. And uh, I get ganged up a little bit. Well, we'll see. I don't know. I think I could probably hold my own, but time will tell. I'm a wild card, Mike. There you go. You never know where you're going to land on some of these things. So anyway, so we have a lot to talk about today. Obviously, Russia and Ukraine, President Biden's Supreme Court nominee, uh, a Big uh, religious, not religious freedom, actually, turns out a free speech anti-discrimination case for the Supreme Court, uh, the verdict in the federal hate crimes trial of uh, Ahmaud Aubrey, a squad member who's going to deliver, uh, yes, a Democratic response to the Democratic president's State of the Union address, Donald Trump's truth social launching, apparently, if you can get on it, and maybe even a little bit more, a whole lot for us to talk about. And we are going to get started with that in just one second. Let every nation know whether it wishes us well or ill, that we shall pay any price, bear any burden, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe to assure the survival and the success of liberty. That clip you heard was, of course, from President Kennedy's January 1961 inaugural address. And While JFK's words were always more, I think, aspirational than reflective of actual U.S. policy, it seems clear to me, at least, that this doesn't seem to even be much of an aspirational goal anymore, and that a 2022 version of Kennedy's uh, line might be something like, "Eh, well, chip in here and there to assure the survival and the success of liberty, as long as it's, you know, not too inconvenient, then there's something in it for us. Anyway, uh, we'll get to that. But as I'm sure everyone knows, the expected Russian invasion of Ukraine has now happened. Early this week, Russian dictator Vladimir Putin gave a paranoid, grievance-filled address in which he attempted to portray Russia as a victim of a vast Western conspiracy and argued falsely that Ukraine is historically a part of Russia and therefore never a true country in its own right. This was followed by Putin recognizing two eastern Ukrainian regions as independent republics and sending in peacekeeping troops to, in Putin's words, demilitarize and denazify Ukraine. Um, Okay, with a Jewish president. Anyway, sanctions started after that, but they did nothing to prevent the full-scale invasion that continues as we speak. The international community has, of course, made the standard expressions of outrage for Russia's naked aggression. And uh, the major sanctions that we've been talking about, expecting for months, have been announced. President Biden also announced additional U.S. troops troop deployments in Germany, but he also reiterated his commitment to not send U.S. troops into Ukraine to combat Russian forces. And it doesn't seem likely that any country will commit forces, leaving the Ukrainian military vastly outnumbered and outgunned. 
So that's kind of where things stand right now. Uh, why don't we start off with you, Jay? What's your what's your take on what happened this week so far? Well, I, I guess um, you know my take is that there's nothing here that is not was not expected, right? This has kind of played out uh, as as everyone had thought. It was just a, a matter of time for Putin to get his forces together. Uh, and then put together a sort of the the very flimsy sort of cover story um, about uh, uh, you know breakaway uh, Ukrainian uh, regions and so forth and the the need to you know recognize their independence and I mean it's all very much there's there's kind of the you know dictator invasion playbook and and you just kind of followed right through it um, so I, I guess th- there's there are no surprises there um, I mean we can talk about what the West has done uh, and hasn't done um, in a minute. Uh, I mean, my, my sense is I would, would rather have seen a more forceful response or would rather have seen a more forceful response ahead of time. Right. Um, uh, let's, let's hit, hit, uh, hit hard with sanctions and say, okay, when you start uh, pulling your troops back and um, uh, you know, stop, stop threatening, then we will uh, start relieving sanctions. Um, so, uh, I, that's, to me, that's, that's troubling. I, again, I, I don't see any, um, serious, uh, uh, chance that, that, that the U S would in, engage in any kind of ground combat, uh, in Ukraine. Um, but, uh, and, and nor do I necessarily even recommend that that would be a, a, a good idea for all sorts of reasons, but, uh, I, I think we ought to do and, and continue to do everything we can to to make sure that the Ukrainians are as, as heavily armed as, as possible, get as much aid as possible, and also shut down every uh, uh, outlet for the Russians to either make money, transfer money, uh, keep money, and put put pressure on Putin's inner circle, um, because that's, that's where there's really going to be some sort of cost that he might see. I mean, he's not going to... You know, a, a, a sanctions that that uh, hurt the Russian people are not really going to affect him. When his buddies start calling, um, uh, saying that their uh, their bank accounts have been frozen, uh, that may have more of an effect. But that's that's just my the, the quick you know mm-hmm. real general view. So, Trey, any uh, uh, any disagreements or anything you wanted to add or anything that has surprised you in the last week? Well, I mean, I, I want to start by saying you know as you were doing the overview there. I think that one of the things we've done in the West a little bit wrong is not actually listen to what Putin's been saying. Uh, I think if you, one of the mistakes we often make when we're analyzing the behavior of other countries in global politics is that we assume that dictators, when they are giving their so-called flimsy excuses, are not actually revealing things about their intentions in, in, uh, in systematic ways. And I can I, I, I see in what Putin is talking about uh, in, in those in his terms, he is making really highly nationalistic arguments that I think might help us explain what comes next, uh, not just in the Ukraine, but in a broader way. So I, the, the thing I would add here would be to say that uh, I, I think there is some signaling from here here uh, for him who, uh, for what's next. And then we can we can talk more about what ought to be the Western response. Yeah. 
You know, my take, my take on that, and Jay, you, you talked about sanctions and hitting hard, and and I think in we we see there's a whole raft of sanctions, but I think it's most important to consider what we're not sanctioning. We're not sanctioning Russian energy because it's just right. too important to us. I mean, the, the sanctions that the West is willing to impose might cost Russia maybe two, three percent of their GDP over time, but 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 that's a cost that Putin is willing to accept. That you know, and the cost of the death and injury uh, to God knows how many Russian forces, Russian people, Ukrainian people, uh, and a huge refugee crisis. Now, the West, on the other hand, isn't willing to accept anything close to that same military or economic cost, which is why we haven't even, you know, kicked Russia out of the SWIFT system, financial transaction system. And so as for sanctioning Putin, you know, specifically in his inner circle, they've had since 2014 to sanction proof their assets. And it's going to be just a symbolic thing, if anything. So basically, the bottom line is Putin wants this more than we want to stop him because any sanctions that would make uh, really a damn bit of difference to Russia that would change Putin's behavior would impose costs on the West. And we've said not only are we not going to you know, bear, any, bear any burden or you know, meet any hardship, support any friend, oppose any foe, we're going to do basically the bare minimum to pretend that we're actually that we actually care about Ukraine. We've just made a. a, a call it a rational calculation, call it a whatever, that we are not willing to really risk anything economically or, or in any other way to support Ukraine. And hey, Ukraine, you're on your own. That's kind of my take yeah, on that. Yeah. And there also have been have been rumblings um, uh, from the, the Biden State Department about that. Well, uh, is, you know, if we are, are continuing to uh, provide arms uh, during hostilities, uh, does that uh, somehow violate international law? Does that make us uh, a, a not a no no longer a non-combatant? And and sort of these these questions about uh, again international legal niceties um, that I find to be really really troubling um, because Putin's not concerned about the legal niceties, and uh, if if it almost looks as if we might be looking for a a backdoor to say, uh, geez, we'd love to help you, but uh, yeah. some more. But uh, gosh, our hands are tied. So <laughs> international law, what are you going to do? Um, so, yeah, I mean, there was. I mean, gentlemen, oh, I'm so sorry, Mike. No, go ahead, go ahead, Trey. I was saying one of the one of the problems that I have about this conversation is like, well, what more? You know, why, why don't we have a broader set of sanctions? If you take a look at the scholarly literature on sanctions, though, they don't work. Right. As a matter of fact, if you if you if you go back to kind of the seminal study, which is uh, Huffer and uh, I'm teaching global politics right now, we were talking about this this semester. If you go back to that. This is they, they studied sanctions from 1914 to 1990. This is kind of the seminal work on it. And they find that it only works sometimes 34 percent of the time when this was redone. It comes down into the one percent range. Uh, so even when you have kind of totally crippling sanctions, the, the kind of sanctions that uh, Mike Pompeo uh, talked about against Iran, which would the maximum pressure campaign that's going to lead to people to rise up in, in regime change. There has actually never been a regime change in the face of economic sanctions or a major policy foreign policy change in the face of sanctions ever. Yeah, exactly. And, and, well, I, and I, I, well, I, Germany 1933, but that's a different story. Well, I mean, we're, we're not just talking about sanctions on, on some podunk 
country, right? We're talking about the world's 11th largest economy with, you know, pretty significant mm-hmm. backing from the world's second largest economy. And the fact of the matter is, is the larger the economy you're trying to sanction uh, and the more interconnected things are, the more the more knock-on effects there are. And so we can't hurt them significantly without hurting ourselves significantly. And that's that's just, you know, that's just how it, how it is. And so that's why especially sanctions aren't going to do anything but make the West feel better about itself. Like we're doing something, but honestly, it's not. I mean, it, it's better than thoughts and prayers, I guess, but not not a whole lot better, I don't think. Well, I, I, I mean, I, I, exactly mean I think Trey Trey is is right on on that. Um, not having read the literature, but just going going from my gut. Um, but the the problem, of course, is when you've when that's the, that's the only tool, uh, not the only necessarily only the tool, the only tool you have, but uh, the only tool you're willing to use. Um, you know, that's that's where we are it, it's it's talking about how big do we go on sanctions it's not talking about something else i i think the best way to prevent uh, uh an invasion is uh, by heavily arming the, the country that uh, yep. <laughs> looks to be invaded um uh but you know that ship has sailed at this point so yeah definitely you know and and, and one one point I wanted to make, and it kind of gets to something you said earlier, Jay, is you know, this is one of these instances where authoritarian regimes have a big advantage over democracies because Putin can, you know, go to war and muzzle the media, what little independent-ish media there is, right, and basically crush any dissent. And there's, there's the reason why we're not doing more is because no Western democracy has the public support to, to stop him to do that sort of thing. And and so that I mean, it, it tends to be a lot easier to go to war if you're if you're an authoritarian state. And so, you know, Putin is pressing disadvantage. Not only that, but and this is a point where I sort of agree with it's weird to say Donald Trump. He called Putin's actions, you know, very savvy and a genius move. And in a raw, amoral power politics sense, he Trump is absolutely right here. Yeah. And, and so, I mean, he got some criticism, but I mean, I, I think it, it it makes a lot of sense. Not only that, but, you know, in terms of why Putin did what he did right now, I think in part you can make the argument that he sees that Europe is starting to diversify its energy sources. But there's been a lot of talk, especially on the right in the U.S., about helping Europe get more liquefied natural gas from the United States. And, and so, you know, for instance, Poland has been really active on this. They actually have a plan to end all reliance on, on Russian gas, I think sometime in 2022, in fact. And so, you know, Russia, I, I think, felt like, or Putin felt like, well, I'm never going to have more economic leverage than I have now. And oh, by the way, have you seen what world energy prices are doing? So this is this is a perfect time if you're ever going to do this, to do this. And so, like I said, from an amoral strategic perspective, I think this is a Donald Trump is exactly right. Well, he's getting hammered not because of that statement. I agree with you. I think that statement isn't getting read in the, in the best possible light. I think in large part because his proxies have been and continue to be Putin apologists. Well, yeah. And, you know, I, I wanted to talk about that as well, because there's been a, a interesting uh, or uh, to me kind of sad split over this. I mean, we, we can sort of see this uh, a microcosm of it in the Ohio U.S. Senate race. You have uh, J.D. Vance, who said, I don't really care what happens to Ukraine one way or another. And then in a tweet, he sort of expanded on this and he said, what's happening in Ukraine doesn't threaten our national security, but it does distract our leaders from the things that do actually threaten it, like 
the wide open southern border and all the fentanyl coming across, killing American kids. And then Jane Timken, uh, the other establishment Republican challenger, tweeted in response, America first means peace through strength. President Trump proved for four years that we can have secure southern borders and stand up for our enemies. While Biden failed at both that obligatory shot at Biden, I won't. Ohioans want a senator that can walk chew gum and put America first all at the same time. And again, this I think that we view tuning in, for instance, to Tucker Carlson, who seems to be, a, I don't know, a charter member of the Vladimir Putin fan club. Don't be a Putin hater kind of thing. Is, is this all just, you know, meaningless blather or, or does this is this a serious issue? And I want to I want to start with with you, Trey, on this one. Well, that's one of the reasons I wanted to go back to talk about Putin's uh, relationship to nationalism. I think you're seeing you know, we've seen nationalists, if Trumpites are anything, they are ultra-nationalists. And so I don't think that it's a particularly deep ideological surprise to find them finding common ground with fellow, uh, albeit more authoritarian-leaning, uh, nationalists. Jay? See, I, I, well, I do. I'd be surprised. I mean, because I think, I think part, of, part of being a nationalist um, I mean, capital N nationalist uh, writ large, uh, Trumpian nationalist, right, uh, is is not just a, hey, uh, uh, USA first. I mean, well, I guess it is. It's USA first. And I think there is sort of also a um, uh, USA uh, uber alles, if you will. Um, right. I mean, so I, I don't I, I think that to my view, so much of, of uh, the, that sort of nationalism would also include a and and screw you Putin, right? I, I, that's just my my sense. It would it would be um, uh, you wouldn't see that respect for for Putin. Now and then, now again, Trump's got this weird thing of his, um, uh, you know, I've got a respect for very strong leaders and all that sort of thing, which is I think more a a weird personal type um, uh, issue with him as as opposed to a, a political philosophy. Yeah, I wonder about that because I, I disagree with that. I think that there's sort of a, a, a significant segment of the American population that that really kind of appreciates that sort of strongman sort of thing. And, you know, it's not just an American thing. We can see it in a bunch of countries, you know, uh, in a bunch of democracies and countries across the world. And so there's a there may not be a majority, but there are people, I think, who look to Putin and say, yeah, that's what we need more of that kind of stuff. We need someone who's willing to to stand up and and you know, take care of take care of business and screw the legal constitutional niceties. You know, we're going to take care of our people. Putin's doing that. And hey, good on him. Well, I, I, I think so. I get sort of where you're coming from with that. But I. On the one hand, it's 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 one thing to say, hey, look at these other countries. They put themselves first and uh, they're not worried about uh, the rest of the world. So we shouldn't be either. So I think that's right. I think I think that's that's a a strong theme uh, thinking uh, on on a lot of people on the right but i don't think that necessarily transfers to and therefore we support putin right i think you can say uh look this is a you know this this guy gets away with it why can't we it's it's more right. a matter of i i don't i don't see it as uh admiration for putin i see it more as a a wish for more toughness among our own 
candidates, if you will. I'm I'm not I'm not sure. It's sort of I'm I'm trying to kind of split a hair hair here, but I think you know what I'm talking about. Yeah. Yeah, I think, and I think some people, some people would would agree with that. But there are some people who are just flat out Putin admirers. They see the, you know, they see the shirtless picture on the horse, and be like, yeah, that's 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 a that's guy. Cool. That's a guy. No, and me. there were, you know, and there were some. I mean, going back to like the, the 30s, I can remember there was the biography of Pat Buchanan, um, uh, who talked about growing up. They had a. Uh, portrait of Francisco Franco oh, uh, in their home, right? <laughs> it means that you're, they're sort of admiring oh, uh, again the the, the strongman uh, yeah. dictator type thing from from the right. Um, yeah. Another thing I wanted to get into is uh, we've been hearing a little bit about this in the last couple of weeks the the, the Budapest Memorandum of 1994, and of course that was the agreement between the U.S., Great Britain, Russia, and Ukraine in return for Ukraine giving up its nuclear arsenal at that point, which, which it was the, the weapons it had from the former Soviet Union was something like the third largest nuclear power in the world. Uh, all the signatory countries agreed to, in the words of the memorandum, refrain from the threat or use of force against the territorial integrity or political independence of Ukraine, as well as to refrain from economic coercion against Ukraine and to seek immediate U.N. Security Council action to provide assistance to Ukraine in the event of an act of aggression against the country. Now, Pretty clearly, Russia has violated the Budapest Memorandum, yeah. but there's been some question about whether or not the U.S. actually has still kept its commitment. I wanted to get uh, Trey. What, what do you think about that? Have we have we kept our commitment there, or, or or not? I mean, yes to the letter, but it points to the broader international issue that we have, uh, and that is, if you'll notice, the the Budapest Memorandum basically said that the Security Council would take action if this is violated. And of course, we brought things to the Security Council, but our Security Council has permanent members that can veto things. Russia. And so, you know, <laughs> shockingly, Russia, yeah. you know, vetoes it. So th- I think what and what this goes to show is, is that we 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 did not create the kind of post-World War II international organizations that we needed to uh, because no one was willing to let go of the balance of power theory. And instead, we just shoved it into the Security Council and pretended like the United Nations was going to be a depository of law. But really what it was, was a depository for law for smaller countries. And it didn't really fundamentally change anything when it came to the what was what, the, those times, the major powers. And let's, you know, I'd like for us to kind of look also at the longer what we think the longer term implications here are uh i mentioned this beforehand already there's a a move to get a lot more uh, liquefied natural gas to europe and i'm wondering if you guys think that this is going to this action is going to uh fundamentally change kind of the energy architecture if you will of europe with much more reliance because you have to build up an infrastructure to deliquify natural gas. And a lot of European countries haven't done that, certainly to this point. I mentioned Poland as, a, as an example of one that has. Do you see this as being as being something that is going to move that along or was that inevitable in the first place? And what do you think that might mean, I guess, geopolitically for, for Russia? Uh, Jay, what do you think? Well, I guess my first answer is I hope so. Um, my second answer is is I I rather doubt it um, uh, because I the you know problem that we've seen is is this um, uh, you know green paralysis uh, type type situation. Well, we're going to eliminate all these 
these carbon sources and uh, we're going to be very virtuous and uh, we're not going to produce them here. Uh, we'll just get them from the uh, slightly less virtuous Ru- Russians. Um, so I, that's, to me, it, it's, uh, that's a, a going to be a perennial problem. Um, the idea perhaps was that Look, this is this is often the idea, right? That if you've got someone you're trading with and you have a good relationship with, uh, the effects will will be a, a general amelioration of of uh, uh, relationships, and and there'll be an incentive to get along, and and uh, uh, you know democracies don't go to war, and and but when it's when it's being run by a, a gangster like Putin, that's that's a different situation, and and I I guess the if there was the failure to anticipate of uh, what happens uh, if this this energy source uh, of all the, the natural gas, uh, you know, essentially falls in the hands of, of someone who is who is basically a gangster. Um, you know, that reminds you know, me, there was a, a comment or a column by Tyler Cowen in in, uh, in in Bloomberg this week. And he he said, you know, uh, he thought about he tried to think about how Ronald Reagan would approach this. And he said, well, one thing about Ronald Reagan is that he understood that some, some people, some world leaders are just evil and you have to sort of approach it from, from that standpoint. And this isn't just like a, 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 a rational kind of, you know, yeah. enlightened sort of guy. He just, Putin is just like us, except he happens to run Russia instead of France or, or something like that. And, you know, I, in thinking about that, I found it just almost bizarre in a way that Macron is, was running around last week saying, well, I have assurances that, you know, Putin says he won't. And I thought, my God, is, is it possible that the president of France is, is that that naive that he would actually think that? And it's sort of I'm trying to figure out the three dimensional chess version of that. But it sort of blew my mind that that was even something that that the man would say. I, I, I don't know. Trey, any, any thoughts on this? Well, I want, to, I want to agree with Jay in part, I mean, in part and the disagree part. I mean, if there is if there is a group of individuals in Europe who just need to be hanging their heads in shame, it is the German Greens who pushed Germany from nuclear power. Yeah. Oh, amen. <laughs> right. Yep. Uh, I mean, they're just a shame, just a shame to themselves. So I, and I think on that part, we all need to be in agreement. Now, I think where I might have a, a, a shame disagreement there is. I think in general, trading creates, I mean, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that deep trading ties do uh, decrease the probability of conflict, increase the connections that we have. The problem, though, is not just when you have a gangster who's in control, Ayla Putin, but when those kinds of ties are only at the superficial or at, at like, singular levels. I yeah, no, I, Trey, I think that's exactly uh, right. Okay, okay, then we're on the same page then, yeah. Uh, so th- that there is the is the problem. Uh, I guess we agree, actually, Jay. Well, and when the when the trade is so one sided, and you don't have uh, uh, other sort of cross cultural things going on with it, right? When the when the only well, yeah, because um, the only tie is this is our this is our number one gas supplier um, who can turn off the gas at any time. Yeah, I think you're right. Those those kind of cultural and other ties are are really important. Absolutely, and we don't we don't have that really. Russia has always been kind of apart in that sense. So you know, I, I let's let's kind of look back all or look forward to what we see as sort of other consequences aside from you know the energy industry and so forth. And and you know, Trey, you mentioned the the German Greens. Of course, there are a lot of a lot of folks on the left in, in the U.S. who are, have concerns about us expanding uh, LNG 
supplies to Europe because we would like to, uh, many folks on the left would like to see less fossil fuels in general. And, I, and I'm with you guys on this. While I, you know, I, I want that that to be the future as well. I don't think that in the uh, immediate future that that makes a whole lot of sense. But anyway, so yeah, we've talked before, Jay, uh, about Taiwan, right? Uh, the U.S. has an agreement with Taiwan, but it's not a defense treaty, and it does not, and I'm thinking about the Budapest Memorandum here again, it doesn't guarantee that the U.S. will intervene militarily if Taiwan is attacked. It only says, and I, I read through it this week, it only says that the United States will consider any efforts to determine the future of Taiwan by other than peaceful means, including by boycotts or embargoes, a threat to the peace and security of the Western Pacific area, and of grave concern to the United States. Um, so some people have you know, talked about, well, China is watching this. China has some pretty significant interest in Taiwan, has for a long time, the nationalist piece, because certainly China feels like Taiwan is rightly a part of China. And you can make a stronger case for that, I would argue, than Ukraine being rightly a part of Russia historically. Uh, so, I mean, is this the sort of thing that might make it more likely if people are asking for, you know, China to maybe, you know, take over or try to take over Taiwan? Uh, what do you guys think? Uh, yeah, I, I, I would expect that, you know, with six months to a year. Yeah. You know, I was thinking about this as well, but actually, Jay, I think you're I think you're wrong on this. And I think you're wrong on this for a couple of reasons. Number one is, uh, well, the biggest reason is just simply a, a military reason, because I was we had talked about this before. And so I kind of dug into the military realities of this. And uh, the fact of the matter is, is Taiwan has a military that's probably slightly more capable than Ukraine's. Uh, and China has a military that's uh, smaller and less capable in many ways than Russia's. And that hasn't really been actually in combat or tested since 1979, where they didn't really do too well. Uh, and not only that, but to take over Taiwan would require the most massive amphibious operation really since D-Day. And uh, China, China's armed forces are just simply not set up, not, not built to do that sort of thing. So while I'm not disagreeing that China might think, well, at some point we could certainly do this, the fact of the matter is that their military is just not set up for not only that, but Taiwan would be one of the most difficult, if you want to pick one of the most difficult amphibious operations to launch a, a launch against, Taiwan would be, it's like a defender's dream. So, yeah. no, and, and I think there's also, yeah, any kind of uh, sea invasion um, would be necessarily easier to defend against, at least in the short term. And you set up blockades and, and there are all those other sorts of um uh, steps that you can take that, that are different from uh, defending against a land invasion. Yeah. So, I mean, there's just basically, uh, I, I mean, six months to a year, I think is completely out of the question. China, uh, China would basically have to reconfigure significant chunks of its, uh, of its naval forces, of its, of its armed forces to be able to do this. And so, while I'm not ruling it out, obviously, and certainly kind of what we've seen here, I would say makes it more likely uh, it's, it's, it's not the sort of thing that would would happen for uh, for a while. And also, there's the fact that China is much more integrated in the world economy in ways that Russia just isn't. And so, it, it the calculation is much trickier for China than it is really for Russia. I mean, in, in some ways, and this goes back to I think 
2012. During the 2012 presidential uh, race, uh, Mitt Romney said that he thought Russia was the number one uh, strategic uh, challenge or uh, aggressor or whatever to the United States. And Barack Obama mocked him, saying the 1980s called, they want their foreign policy back, that sort of thing. And, you know, I think, though, Romney was right and was wrong. He was right in the sense that Russia is tends to be more aggressive in that kind of outward way, because I think Putin and Russia recognize that they're a, they're a declining power. They don't have the sort of future that China has for a lot of reasons. And so Russia, I think, is feels, you know, cornered and feels like it's it's you know its star is on the on the decline and so if it wants to do something if putin wants to do something make his mark on history well in a, in a big way the time to act is now and i think china doesn't feel that pressure because it thinks well just kind of the course of how things are going by 2050 2060 we're going to be running a lot of stuff and uh you know i i don't necessarily think that's uh has to be the case, but certainly China is going to feel less threatened in a way that Russia really feels threatened. At least that's kind of my take on it. Trey, what do you think? Yeah, I, I, I don't. Going back to our earlier conversation, <laughs> the amount of deep connections that China has with trade with the United States and the rest of the world. I mean, that's one of the reasons I, I, I was not a fan of the, the Trump foreign policy to take away what would have been increased ties with Asia, because those would have been the kind of deep ties that would have precluded a lot of those possibilities. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, no, I, I don't see that as being uh, likely. And then just more strategically, when you take a look at the actions of China vis-a-vis uh, -vis Russia, if they really wanted to take those positions, now would be a wonderful time to, in some ways, back the Russian position and. They have not. I mean, they haven't exactly condemned it, but they certainly haven't used it as a justifiable launching point, which would be an easy thing to do if you were hoping in the short run to do something similar. You know, and they certainly China has suggested that this is somehow the you know the U.S.'s fault uh, in a way, which is you know okay, uh, a Russian invasion of Ukraine is the fault of the United States, and you know wrap your head around that. But but you're right. I mean, they haven't done that kind of really overt sort of thing. Uh, one, one final thing I wanted to, to talk about, and I'm sure we'll be coming back to this, to, to this uh, you know, again and again in the weeks and months to come. Uh, right now, as we as we are recording this on a Saturday morning, we, we see that, you know, Kiev is, is under siege and it, it feels to me like it's only kind of a matter of time. And, and sort of how I see the future playing out here is that uh, the Russian forces are going to uh, sooner or later overwhelm Ukraine's defense forces and that at some point in time there is going to be some sort of a puppet regime put into place in the name, again, of demilitarizing and you know, kind of pushing out the Western puppets. And there will be resistance activity. But uh, I think that over the next few years, then these sanctions are going to these that aren't going to be very effective in the first place are going to start to sort of be pulled away here and there. And that in the end, Putin's basically going to have gotten what he wanted with no, I mean, with some repercussions, certainly we're talking about, you know, an effect of a couple percent of Russian GDP, but with no real repercussions for Putin or the people in power in Russia. Just once again, the big repercussions coming, I would say, from the, the, the people of Russia who 
God, you got to feel for those folks for, for, for forever. They've suffered under horrifically bad, evil leaders. And once again, and of course, then there'll be the refugee crisis in, you know, in, in this area. There's already reports of tens of thousands of people fleeing to Poland. And so a big mess. But in the end, Putin basically gets what he wants at a price that he's more than happy to pay. And that's kind of how I see these, this playing out over the next few years. And I wanted to know if either of you guys saw it any differently than that. Well, um, I think you're I think you're probably right. Sadly, I think that's that's probably correct. Um, I, I guess my hope would be that there this becomes more of a long term uh, Ukrainian resistance, right, that they uh, Russians get bogged down and, and this uh, becomes more and more costly than what Putin believed and what he promised. Uh, likewise, I do think that the pressure we're going to exert on Putin is going to come from his inner circle, who might at some point say, uh, Vlad, this is really bad for business. Um, you know, we're, we're all suffering. You need to you need to knock this off. Uh, I do think there will be some, you know, sort of puppet regime installed and, and so forth. Uh, and I'm I I'm. Sadly, I, I think that our our European allies uh, are not going to push this, uh, and we'll we'll everyone will start saying, "Oh, let's give peace a chance," and so forth. Uh, so, I, I I think you're you're probably right, but uh, uh, hopefully wrong. I mean, we can. Uh, I would I would hope that that the United States and others are going to do what they can, uh, you know, covertly uh, to to keep up uh, any kind of resistance here. Um, but if, if you look back, I'm thinking also, you know, historically of, um, Hungary in 1956, Czechoslovakia in 1968, um, those were a little bit different situations, right? Where those, those two countries were, were nominally on paper independent countries, but they never, they really weren't at, right. at that, at that time. Um, Ukraine is, is actually a, an independent country, um, uh, but but still, the, you know, what happened then was the West made all sorts of condemnations about the, what happened in Hungary and Czechoslovakia uh, and in the end uh, did did nothing. Um, it, it did, however, um, you know, sort of show show the world the Russian who the Russians really were. Right. I think it's so many of, of uh, folks who are who are apologists for uh, Putin or Russia uh you know are going to have to backtrack at some point and or or they're going to have to own this right so i think there's there's that effect as well trey well i'd like i'd like to add so i i agree jay on the front that i can't see around the corner of what the you know what ukrainian resistance is uh, you know, the, the based on that will determine whether that could be a potential quagmire uh for russia or not and how long and how costly. And I think that's the real cost, not the sanctions. The question will be what kind of, of continued resistance that there is. Uh, and how long does it actually take for them to control in a meaningful way militarily the area? Because, again, as of Saturday morning, they still haven't yet done that. Um, and it's it and it's one thing it's one yeah it's one thing to take that territory it's another thing to kind of hold it and manage it and and that sort of thing mm -hmm. so yeah i think that's a good point trey absolutely so, so I, I i think we get you it's hard to see around that corner but i think the other portion here that we have to wonder about is you know what is 
uh, Putin's next move? I mean, is it just about the Ukraine or not? Uh, and, and again, we, that's why I say and started the segment by saying I think we need to talk and take a look at the nationalistic uh, overtones of Putin, uh, because what he sets up here seems to be a broader. And if we take his writing seriously, uh, the first stage in what he argued needed to be a reconstitution of the greatest devastation of historic time, which was the collapse of the Soviet Union. Those are his words, right? So his translated words, at least. Um, I, I, I think that's part of what we have to ask ourselves as we're moving forward. I guess the, the part here where I might disagree a little bit is in the same way that I don't think the left ever really uh, had to own up to its sympathy for the communist version of Russia. I don't think the American right is ever going to have to own up for its sympathy towards the Putin Russia. Uh, neither side has. And, and, and so I wish that I could agree with you, Jay, that this will cause a, a reckoning in the United States about ideological positions, but I highly doubt it. Uh, and if anything, might embolden them. You know, I, I I think in terms of Putin's ambitions, he's perfectly happy with having like a Belarus sort of situation, you know, a client, basically a client state sort of thing. Jay, you mentioned kind of you know, the independent countries that aren't in, in you know, in, in effect independent. Right. And so I can certainly see, you know, I mean, Georgia looks at this is like, OK, that, that's a pretty strong message, basically. But I don't actually see any further military incursions because Putin gets what he wants without having to do that sort of thing. And so, you know, to me, and maybe this is me being overly optimistic, I think it pretty much ends here militarily. I don't see Finland going or anything like that, but, but also I think in part that's going to, you know, cause them, uh, I hope, and maybe not being overly optimistic again, I hope this really reinvigorates NATO and we, we really kind of strengthen that. And Germany finally starts, for instance, paying its 2% of GDP toward, and, and so it ends there, but still obviously not, not the uh, short term outcome that we want. But longer term, if this strengthens the resolve of, of Western and Central European real democracies against authoritarian regimes and reminds us all that there are evil people in charge who don't want to play by civilized rules, then, you know, that's that's at least one positive thing to come out of this. Yeah, I'm, I'm with you on the uh, revitalized NATO. I think that's that's big. And that's something I should have mentioned. Um, and I think we ought to look at fast tracking these countries that aren't NATO member members uh, to becoming NATO members. All right. So. Moving on, the other big news of this week is that on Friday, President Biden announced that he was nominating Ketanji Brown Jackson to replace retiring Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer. Jackson, who's 51 years, she's 51 years old. She served on the D.C. Circuit Court of Appeals since June of 2021. And prior to that, she was a federal district court judge in the D.C. District from 2013 on until moving up to the appellate level. Now, this is probably the least surprising thing we've talked about in a while on the show because Jackson was considered the front runner for the position really from the time that President Biden announced his intention to nominate a black woman. So, Jay, uh, it seems to me I want to get your take first. It seems to me that she checks all the boxes, standard boxes for a Supreme Court nominee, Harvard Law graduate, early 50s, appellate court judge, clerked for a justice, Justice Breyer in this case, who she would be, uh, uh, you know, basically it's sort of like it's right down the playbook. Uh, what, what, what are your thoughts? Yeah, I think that's I think that's probably right. Um, 
my, uh, you know, only thought would would be, you know, the other one of the other shortlisters had been um, uh, Judge Michelle Childs, who was supported by uh, both Jim Clyburn uh, and uh, Lindsey Graham. Um, I want to say Lindsey Graham supported her, but I think he he's certainly indicated that uh, his his non opposition and that he thought highly of her. Um, that would have been sort of the easier easier route, and I think uh, Judge Childs was generally viewed as as someone who was more moderate, more towards the middle. Um, but uh, uh, Biden chose the you know progressive favorite, um, which is his his right to do. So uh, I, I, I yeah I don't see anything really shocking or surprising here. Uh, I think the um, uh, hearings will be, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't expect a a big uh, Republican resistance. I think she'll get asked some tough questions at confirmation, obviously, but I think they will be ideological. They will, there was not going to be sort of any kind of character assassination attempt, and uh, nor nor should there be. Uh, so I, I think that's that's how it goes. I think she ends up probably uh, getting a couple Republican votes uh, as as things progress. But again, there's there's a long way to go still. Um, but that's, that's my, my, you know, my take. Um, I, I do think, again, I'll, I'll, I'll reiterate the, the whole I, idea. And I, I saw the, the video of, of President Biden calling her, telling her he was going to nominate her. And again, was sort of just deeply, I don't know, I just got this really, uh, feeling of, of, he, he calls up and he, he says, well, I'm appointing you, and and because I, I you know, I, I think the Supreme Court should look like America. Um, at which point, I can just, you know, think, well, uh, gosh, thanks. Uh, you know what I mean? It's it's just such a the backhanded uh, compliment sort of thing. Um, and also, I just I would would point out the disingenuousness of of Joe Biden, uh, uh, his his big concern that the Supreme Court looked like America now when uh, George Bush had at one t- time floated the idea of nominating. Uh, Judge uh, uh, Rogers Brown um, uh, back at uh, the Supreme Court and Biden promised a, a filibuster uh, against her um, <laughs> because of that. So, you know, again, I, I don't think he, you know, or at least he didn't didn't particularly care that the Supreme Court looked like America back then. Um, uh, so that's that's my that's my take. Uh, I really wish uh, I, I wish we could get away from this whole race racial leading leading the the, the part and this is sort of all the stuff i said a couple weeks ago so i don't know know that i need to repeat it again but uh it's one thing to say hey i've got a, a great candidate here uh and uh she's uh, she's an african-american woman and hey that's a bonus um it's something else entirely to say i'm going to pick someone of this race and this uh uh gender um uh just because that's that's what I <laughs> that's my number one criteria. Uh, so uh, yeah, yeah, I, I, I and we've kind of had a, at least a version of this discussion for when we knew that was going the nominee was going to be a black woman. I mean, I I don't see it that way because I think there are just so many incredibly qualified people of pretty much any any race and and gender and gender that you can say that and like I said she she ticks all the boxes she's going to be yeah. just great I don't have a problem with that I don't think it's a backhanded compliment at all my my one concern 
is when we talk about, you know, diversity, we tend to talk about racial and gender diversity. When I look at the court, it's basically like, well, you got your diversity, you got your Harvard people and you got your Yale people. And then, you know, your yeah. weird yeah. Notre Dame law school person. But I mean, this, this isn't this isn't diversity in, in any kind of viewpoint sense. These are people who have gone through the almost the exact same system, the exact same steps. Uh, if this is this is not a court that looks like America, we can debate whether or not that's a good thing or a bad thing, but I think it's sort of a it's sort of a disingenuous sort of argument. These people, uh, regardless of race, gender, or anything, they have so much more in common with their sort of insular judicial uh, ladder kind of upbringing to regular Americans that, anyway, uh, Trey, what are your thoughts? Well, I mean, you actually hit one of the things that I wanted to talk about. I mean, the, the truth of the matter is, right, when you started, you said well, she, she ticks all the boxes. And of course, he's got she, he's got to tick all the boxes this go round, because otherwise it would be a brouhaha. I mean, could you imagine if he nominated a black woman who hadn't been from Harvard? It would have been the end of the it'd been the end of the world. <laughs> like, well, again, he, and well, he had that, uh, that option with with Childs who went to uh, uh, state school. Uh, and and again had had some some bipartisan backing. Um, well, you know, the, the I, left the left, never, the left loves would not have got once it came in. There had been zero backing, zero, zero. Well, I, I don't know about that, but but today, who doesn't check these boxes? But 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 I do think you know when we talk about Republican backing, I I. I disagree with you, Jay, uh, on this. I mean, I think if we take a look, a child was never actually, she was going to be nominated for a appellate court position, but then that was put on hold with Breyer's retirement. And so when we take a look, and I think the best kind of indicator is uh, appellate court a nomination votes to confirm in the Senate, because that's a very different thing. It's a lot easier to get kind of bipartisan support for a district court judge. Uh, and so we don't really know as much about uh, support for Childs just because she didn't have to run through that gauntlet that that Jackson did uh, not not even a year ago. Right. And when she did run yeah. through that gauntlet, she got three Republican senators who voted for her. And that was Collins, Murkowski and Lindsey Graham. Now, I think Lindsey Graham absolutely drops out. He, he will not support her for the Supreme Court. And I think maybe if if. I think the biggest, the, the most likely outcome is maybe one Republican vote, Collins or, or Murkowski. But I wouldn't be surprised if there are no Republican votes uh, to uh, to support her because the, the standard argument is, well, it's one thing to support this person for an appellate court. But certainly uh, when we're looking at the Supreme Court, there's a higher standard. And so I can't. Yeah. No, and, and, that, and that's and that's I, I don't think that's a frivolous argument. No, no, but I, but I'm saying it's also a very convenient argument as well. Yeah. So and so, I, I mean, my prediction is that at most there will be one Republican vote in support of her, and I I, I would be willing to bet maybe zero. But uh, you 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 disagree, I guess. I think she I think she gets a handful. A handful. So even though she got three, you have a you must have a small hand. I don't know a Donald Trump sized hand because I mean uh, because if she oh, well. Oh, oh, oh. If she only hey, got, let that go, well, like, I, well, if she only got here, here's my where, point. Where's the <laughs> little little Mike? Um. Ouch! No, here's my point. Sorry, I retract. But here's my point: if she only got three votes to for an appellate court position, I don't see how she gets three votes or more 
for a Supreme Court position. That, that's what I'm saying. Well, well what do you think? Yeah. No, but I, that's that's what I'm saying. The, the I think the margin is when I say a handful. I mean, okay. that's like three or so. I mean, okay. So I would say, I, think, like, I mean, maybe she gets some. Maybe handful, she doesn't. Listen, Part of a hand, if you on, give on me three M and call and it a handful. Months. There you go. I'm, that's what I'm, I'm talking I'm about. Have a <laughs> so it's a semantic thing. You're saying she maybe gets a couple, basically. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. There you go. A couple yeah. or a Donald Trump handful. Gotcha. All right. Okay. So, so yeah, I, I don't, I don't really see this to me. There's not a, I guess I would say there's not a whole lot to talk about here. People have talked about her background as a, as a public defender. And I think that's great. But again, I felt like I knew what we were going to be getting with a Biden nominee. And I can sort of see how this is all playing out. And I'm, I'm, I think she's going to be a great justice. At, at least I, I would be happy. You know, I, I certainly would have been happy picking her as president. I think she'll do exactly what folks on the left hope she will do on the court. And uh, that it's, it's going to be a, a bitter process with almost no Republican support. But, but yeah, she'll be confirmed and uh, it's all good. That's kind of how well, I, I see think it. Republicans are going to look at this or they ought to look at this is, is, is this the hill you want to fight on? And and I, I just don't think it is. Well, I think they're not going to make it a race thing. They're just going to say, well, it's not about her, her race or her gender. Yeah. It's just she is she wants to promote this radical agenda, basically, that we can't support. That's, I think, yeah. going to be kind of that's the, right. that's how it works these days. Right. Which, again, if we talk about Supreme Court nominees, this didn't used to be how it worked. If you take a look at confirmation votes for Supreme Court justices over time, there was a time when confirmation votes were like, in many cases, hugely bipartisan sort of things. And it's it's bizarre, I think, the people coming up today. But, but you know, that that used to be more almost the, the standard than not. Right. But of course, that's that has been that way for quite a long uh, period of time. I mean, you know, uh, even uh, uh, Roberts was confirmed 78 to, to 22. Can, can you imagine, you know, Breyer, 87 to 9, uh, Ginsburg, 96 to 3. It's just those numbers. That, that's from a bygone era. Trey, any any other thoughts before we move on? I mean, it's, it's a bygone era because the institutional structure changed. So I guess, you know, sometimes, you know, you, you, you have to be careful to say, well, is it because the principal actors behave differently or is it because the rules of the game have shifted and therefore people are playing it differently? Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. I think the rules of the game certainly are uh, a whole lot different. All right. Well, we will yeah, exactly. we, we will continue to uh, talk about this as as Judge Jackson's nomination goes through the process. But for now, uh, we will we will end, we will. We will end our our non our non supporter ad free or sorry our ad supported segment at this point. But if you're if you are a politics guy supporter, the rest of the episode is coming right up. And if you're not, just a quick reminder that full episodes, which are ad free and run oh, around two hours or so, are available to our Patreon supporters as well as to anyone who isn't in a position to financially support the podcast at this point or anyone if you'd just like to try it out before becoming a supporter. To become a Patreon supporter, just go to patreon.com slash politicsguys, uh, or you can support us through Venmo or at politicsguys as well as through PayPal. You can find support links in the show notes and at politicsguys.com slash support. And to get free access to full episodes, just send me an email. If you're not able to support us financially, mike at politicsguys.com, and I will get you all set up with that. And whether you're a supporter or not, we really would appreciate it if you could subscribe, rate the show, and leave a review on whatever podcast app you use, as well as to share episodes on social media. Thanks so much.